Welcome to another Pint with Shawnee B. This is a very interesting one. I have never uh, had two people on the show. I like to have uh, face-to-face interviews, as most of you who listen regularly know. And I kind of have two people on the show for the first time today, so I'm a little bit nervous. I'm not sure how it's going to go. Uh, I'm in my home city of Dublin, and I'm actually in my home home in Cavantili, which is in South County, Dublin. And for the second time in a Pint with Shawnee B, there is a member of my family on the show today. It is my father, George Boyle. Uh, He is one of Ireland's foremost ventriloquists and has been for the last 50 or 60 years. And he has kindly contacted his old partner in crime by the name of Gerald. And Gerald and George are here today for your delectation. So welcome, George, first of all. Thank you very much, Sean. And welcome, Gerald. Thank you very much, Sean. What is all this about, George? You're on a podcast. A podcast? That's right. What's a podcast? Well, now, Gerald, it's um, it's sort of the internet. Ah, go on. It is. So what? Well, you see, Gerald, if, for example, if you were down in, 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 in Kerry. Yeah. And if you were out in the mountains. Yeah. Where, where, where Star Wars was. Where Star Wars were, yeah. Or if you were up in Croke Patrick. Yeah. And if you went around and, 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 and you turned on your iPhone, you could listen to this program. I could not. You could so. I couldn't. Could I, Sean? I, do you have an iPhone? No, I couldn't. That's why you couldn't ah. hear it. <laughs> <laughs> now, you stay I quiet for a while. I spoiled your joke okay, there. Okay, you did, you did, you I'm did. I'm sorry you did, about you that, Gerald. Oh, but yeah, no, it's a... It's a there's what's, sort of a t- what's sort of a street on is this guy? No, I'm <laughs> sorry, know. I'm sorry. Not to worry, not to worry. It's a live show, you know. Yeah, ask okay. a question. Anyway, go on. All right, then. Here All we right. go. Well, my father, as I said, has been uh, uh, practicing ventriloquist for how long? Oh, he's practicing still. <laughs> <laughs> 60 years nearly, aren't you? Uh, about what, uh, 60 years. Where yeah. did you two meet? Well, I came along sort of later because, first of all, he was practicing with somebody else. Isn't that right? That's right. I, I used to make my own ventriloquist dummies because I couldn't afford to buy them. Oh, you poor fella. That's right. They were very expensive at the time. Yeah. And uh, consequently, I, I made uh, a few earlier iterations of Gerald right. out of papier-mâché and I used those at school when I was performing for my school colleagues. Oh yeah, you were always making fun of the teachers, weren't you? That was one of the things we did, yes. So you were born in Dublin, uh, yes. George. I'm going to talk to George first, He wanted first, to hear his mother. Can we wait until we get to your life before we talk about you and see how okay. how okay. George came along first? I know and how when I'm not it. wanted. No, you're wanted, you're wanted. No, no. Sure, this is the first time I've had two people on the podcast and I'm a bit kind of shaky myself oh, as a presenter. Yeah, it's very hard. It's very hard. <laughs> I do the best I can for you. All right. So, George, you were uh, you were born in Dublin in, was, in a yes. sort of a working class area. Yes. My father was a civil servant. He was very conscious that servants need to be civil if they're civil servants. Very good. And was very conscious that... Uh, he had a job to do, and he always did it to the best of his ability. What sort of a job did he do in the He was service? in social welfare, would you believe? Oh. And he was also in the Department of Education. You're not kidding. Now, you stay quiet now, okay. And he was in the army? He was in the British Army during the First World War. He enlisted early on in the war, uh, was more or less caught before firing a shot by the Germans, and spent, I think, the best part of the war in, in hospital. We don't really know what the story was because like most young people, we always left it too late to ask our parents about what went on. 
Well, here I am. And I said, well, here you are. Well, I can't tell you about my father. <laughs> I hope it's I not can, too late. I can tell you about me. Some of the things. One of the things that people listening to the show would probably find weird is that an Irish man would go fight for the British Army in the war, which started in 1914 at a time when we were probably as close as we'd ever come to um, getting rid of the British or fighting them out of our country. But a lot of Irish people had no jobs, and there's, there's a reason behind quite a lot of the Irish that went Well, there. again, the, the, as you know, there was a guy called Redmond who was recruiting people from Ireland to go over and fight for the small nations and make sure that they weren't overrun. To what extent that uh, influenced his particular choice, I don't know. So you don't know how he got injured, but was he injured when he came back, or was he? No, he was. He got uh, pneumonia in hospital. I think he was in Mannheim. We had some pictures of him looking very gaunt in in a hospital there. I know many times when I was out with him that he mentioned that if it weren't for the German doctors at the time, we would be sitting here today. So he was a prisoner of war. He was a prisoner of war, yes. And uh, he came back. So this was well before you uh, were around oh he wasn't even a twinkle in the eye of the lord at the time (laughs) (laughs) but uh, yes he came back first of all i think he stayed in england Mm. and he worked with what was called the the crown services over there again in the civil service and after the irish situation developed i think around 1922 the new government of the time wanted people to come back from abroad who had experience and who would run or help develop the civil service and he came back at that time. So Ireland became its own country in 1922, leaving Northern Ireland as part of Great Britain, which it still is to this day. But from 1922, we had to set up a whole country from scratch, basically. So this is why they needed talent to come back and and help found things. And then he met your mother. He met my mother around 1927, I think, and and, uh, got married and he had four children. So yeah. what were your earliest memories growing up in that at that time in like 1930s, 40s Dublin? So it was another war. But there was indeed. Soon and, after and, you uh, arrived. I remember when I was five, the bombing of North Strand. The blackouts were very much in evidence because we were always afraid, although we were neutral, the government was afraid that our lights would act as a beacon for bombers coming across to bomb yeah. Belfast or, or Northern Ireland. Then I remember walking with my father presumably in the North Strand, and seeing houses in rubble. I have a a graphic memory of of a a bedpost, an iron bedpost Mm. sticking out of the rubble with one of these golden knobs on top. I vaguely remember this exchanging a few words with my father saying, have you seen service yourself? And him explaining that he had been in the First World War uh, and uh, had his own memories. What those memories were, I you don't never remember. found out. Yeah, no. um, sadly, too late. Too sadly, late. your you father. Leave it too late. Well, your father died when you were very young. He died when I was uh, sixteen. Yes, he did. Uh, that was rather a, a traumatic event. I bet. To be sure, yeah. Mm. You were. Uh, you and were. Then my mother had to, had to fend for herself. The first major event happened uh, in that uh, the year following, in 53. Because the Abbey Theatre burnt down in 1951, I think it was. But the players who were famous throughout the world were were kept together. They were repositioned into the Queen's Theatre. And every year they had an Irish pantomime on. I auditioned with my then partner. Who was that? 
Bartley. Oh, yeah, Bartley, yes. I remember him, yes. Yeah. So a segue Bartley. there, because uh, George's yes. first puppet, uh, a dummy, um, I'm, I'm not sure, is that technically He's allowed? He's calling me a dummy. Is that, is Take that? my head off and hit him with it. Uh, no, uh, are we, are we politically on. incorrect calling you a dummy, Gerald? Well, you can call me a dummy, you can call me a dummy. I don't care what you're calling me so long as it's not early in the morning. Okay? <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Okay. So yes. we'll use the word... Uh, dummy will do fine. Dummy. Yeah, that's um, right. Okay, I don't mind. Your first dummy was uh, an old Shanna Key called Barkley, right? That's right, yeah. He, 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 he was uh, with him in school. That's right. I used to do the show with Barkley. Uh, he was Santa Claus's assistant. Mm. No, he wasn't. Was he not? No, he was his, his assistant's assistant. Oh, that's right. He yeah. was assistant to the assistant. That's right. right. And she was gorgeous. <laughs> oh, boy, she was gorgeous. Yes, her name was Doreen Madden. And the Santa Claus was a fellow called Martin Dempsey, who left the civil service to become an actor much to the amazement of everybody because he left a pensionable job yeah. for the dicey career Rages. of yeah. a, a thespian. Did you say thespian? I did. Without moving your lips? No, I move my lips. You You were able to say thespian as well. Thespian. It's a tricky yeah, word. Yeah, it's, it's a nice, tricky word, Gerald, yeah, because yeah, you yeah, can yeah. often mix it up with another word. That's Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> None of that. There are children. So before we just finish that Abbey story, how did you meet Barclay? Barclay I made <laughs> down in, in Drumshambo. Your father's place. That's right. Drumshambo's in the Drumshambo's west coast of Ireland. Yeah. It was very expensive to buy plaster scene in those days, you see. So there was a special product called Daub out in the bogs. And you could make moulds from this. So right. we made a, a mould of an old guy's face put pepper mashy on top of that and when it was all dried out you scooped out the, the mould and then you had the, the, the form for the face and yeah. with that I made this old guy Barty Makonmara I called him right. okay and uh, he was my, my first uh, But how did you end up getting the inspiration to get into ventriloquism in the first place? Okay well um, I was coming home on a bus one day when I was 10 mm. and there was a guy a young lad on the bus who had just bought the wizard comic this had a story about a ventriloquist called the Wooden Sheriff of Skeeker Creek. This ventriloquist, who was very small, he was only three or four feet tall, was touring the West, and he was so small he was afraid to do it on his own. So he built this massive dummy, and he used to sit on the dummy's knee, <laughs> and the dummy pretended he was a dummy. And oh. the, 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 so the whole series was how Clever. this young fella kept people confused so that they thought the sheriff was real and that he was just a dummy but uh, yeah. it caught my imagination and I came home and my brother happily was getting the wizard every week so I was reading these stories I persecuted my father who was a great uh, my mother and father both uh, were interested in reading and they'd come back with armfuls of books so I said look any books in ventriloquism so he found a couple of books in ventriloquism I read them from cover to cover many times found out the basic rudiments and practiced and practiced. I was 10 when I started. I suppose Barty came around when I was, what, 14, 15 or so, you know? It's amazing the way one story triggers a small mind to go, you know, a young mind to get so sucked into... Well, to, I, yeah, to, I often wonder why why, why ventriloquism and, and yeah. why, you know, why the theatre and why making jokes and things and... Uh, well, we'll come to that later on, maybe. Yeah, okay. So, okay, we're back then to the... was When so, you made Barclay, tell me what sort of happened. So, when you had so anyway, I was on the Abbey Theatre and I, I, I felt very important because here I was on the Abbey Theatre. Mm. And Gerald, yes, you know what the Abbey Theatre stands for? Well, if it stands for you, it stands for anything. 
<laughs> that's not what I mean. But uh, I was coming out, having done the show, and I was told that two young ladies wanted to see me at the at the stage door. The, the elder of the two, her name was Eta Hines, and happened to be a journalist. And she said, would I mind if she did a piece for me on the Sunday Independent? So right. I didn't know what the ethic was in the Abbey Theatre because it was a team work business yeah. in the theatre and... You know, this bit player coming in as Santa Claus's assistant, assistant, yeah. getting a piece in the paper. I didn't know how to go down. But anyway, she asked me to go along to get a photograph taken. She sent in a photographer the following day. And then she said to the young lady who was with her, we should get his autograph, you know. And she very, very slowly sort of produced her autograph book. And I signed it nonchalantly as if I did this every other day. What age you? I was just uh, 16 at this stage, you know. <laughs> Not a lot of people who can say they signed their first autograph pretended, at 16. Uh, pretended that this was a, just a normal event. It transpired that a very good friend of mine, Pat O'Brien, whom you mm-hmm. know, happened to be at the theatre that same night really? with this lady. And she told me that the young girl had gone round to get Ray McAnally's autograph, who was right. the star of the show, right. <laughs> and wasn't at all pleased at getting this ventriloquist guy ahead of him. <laughs> ahead of him, you know. <laughs> what was it like going home that night when you just... I mean, how, oh, how long was the pantomime run? About three weeks? About or? seven or eight weeks, right. you know. Like every morning I'd, I'd cycle in on my bicycle to school and the big... Billboard was on, Shatantag is a coo, Cullen and his dog. And I'd say, geez, I'm on that tonight, like, you know. Yeah. And I'd uh, come home, have my dinner and cycle back into the into the theatre. When I'd done my piece of about 10 minutes or so, i hide myself home to the study. Study, yeah. Wow. And only appeared on the, uh, on the grand finale on the last night, oh. you know. But it was a fantastic experience. Seven nights, you know, you're forced to do the best you can each night. The repetition and trying to learn and getting the feel of the getting audience tight, and yeah. knowing it was very interesting. What did your friends in school think of it? Well, it, it, it was very funny. I was doing the same material all the time. Right. <laughs> but after I did the Abbey, everybody told me how much I had improved and how fresh my material was. <laughs> Didn't say anything. Yeah. They started listening to you because you... Well, this is the point. All of a sudden you had status because you were on the Abbey Theatre. Boy, oh boy, did I milk that for a long, long time. Did any of the guys in school, like, bully you or give up to think you were above your station? No, but but you see, uh, we had this uh, this concert every year in the Osenham Hall and all the kids would go along to it. I was uh, about 12, I suppose, at this stage in secondary school and uh, the older boys would help me rejig my scripts so that we got all the names, the okay. pet names of the, the teachers, teachers in, yeah. you see. So every time I mentioned Pinky, there'd be a big, hey, or Boxer, hey. I mean, I was the star of the show. However, the following day when I went in, I found that some people weren't quite amused. You, you found know? out why Boxer was called Boxer. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Boxer had me out of the, de- out of the, the blackboard ex- explaining why the two sides of an isosceles triangle or whatever, right angle triangle, are equal to the, 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 the whatever it is, you know. Oh, you've forgotten it already. There you go now. <laughs> it's easy to forget. Whatever. Trigonometry. Uh, I, I feel this may have been partly the reason why I got a scholarship <laughs> that year because I figured I better know my stuff because I was a marked man. You were a marked man, yeah. And uh, I got a scholarship, thanks to God, in my intercert and then I got a scholarship in my final year which helped me going through my engineering 
So it's worth pointing out that you were uh, educated Oscailga, which means in the Irish language, right? That's right. And your first dummy, Barclay, was a Gaelic-speaking dummy. That's correct. And so explain the idea of who Barclay was in the Shanachie story. Well, the point that hit me there was a very good friend of mine when I was 12 passed away at school. His name was uh, Gabriel Commons. His mother <coughs> used to send in tickets to concerts in the Francis Xavier Hall, many of them in Irish, and I'd go along to them and I was struck by how sad the songs were and how little humour was uh, in the the various uh, acts that were on these shows and I thought, gee, you know, I must try and change that. So Barty generally sang happy songs and uh, he told reasonably good clean jokes yeah. <laughs> and uh, raised a laugh. I got great satisfaction out of hearing people being happy mm. at a show. But Barclay was an old man. Explain, explain to our listeners from overseas what a Shanachie is. Well, a Shanachie is, is, is an old gentleman of uh, the roads sometimes, but maybe not. But a guy who would have people in his house and would tell stories about the old days, about... Cullen or Finn McCool or whatever. These storytellers would go around in an era before radio or before television. Or before podcasts. Or before podcasts, thank you, Gerald. Passing on and retaining the local tradition and passing on stories. And that would be the night's entertainment. People would gather in a house and this storyteller, I think Shanaki means storyteller. That's right, yes. Would come in and talk. You know, around the fire, people would gather and listen in the in the, in the candlelight or whatever. So it's a very rich part of uh, old Ireland, which Barclay represented. So you, you've gone into college and you, I know because I'm your son, uh, were extremely intelligent and you came out with an engineering degree. All through college, did you keep the ventriloquism going? Oh, and I did, yeah. There were concerts all over Ireland every weekend. Perhaps I'd be on the boards doing my stuff. And then, uh, when I was 20, in 1956, an impresario from America sent a group of people over to do a next factor type of audition mm. for Irish acts to go on an all-American TV show, the Ted Mac Original Amateur Hour. It had been on television for some 30 years, first of all radio. Pat Boom started his career on that show. Ventriloquist was called... Paul Winchell started his career on that show. But they came to Ireland anyway looking to see what Irish young people did. And they uh, auditioned something like a thousand people and they chose 13 acts. And one of the acts was myself. I took a leprechaun with me to the audition. This element, I suppose, a leprechaun from Ireland. Surefire winner. Surefire winner, yeah. (laughs) So they asked me would I go along and I said sure. All of a sudden I was in the big time. And um, KLM flew you over. KLM flew us the over. Dutch. We were met by a pipe band and given allegedly the keys of New York. Wow. I don't know whether that's true or not, but a key was waved around yeah. as if it was. May have been only a stage prop. Went on the show, 13 acts. People voted in by ringing up. I had a, an aunt, Florence Cunningham, who had a pub in Leitrim, Drum Shambo. And Leitrim, at that time, 56, there were no jobs in Ireland. And the boat was really the only the only mm. solution for many people. And the people from Leitrim used to go to my, some of them, used to go to my aunt's pub, have what they called an Irish wake, whereby they'd invite all their friends and they'd have a big 
get together and say goodbye now, we'll see you soon. They'd head off to America, many of them possibly never to return. They used to write to my Aunt Florrie and she used to write back to them. And uh, when she heard that her nephew was going to the Ted Mack show, <laughs> as far as I can see, she wrote to all these people from, from Shambo, etc., who had their wakes in her pub mm. and um, told them to watch out for George. Consequently, when the phones were ringing, I'd say I had quite a coterie of people from, from Shambo at the other end. And I got the most votes, so I was kept back for a second week. Votes came in again, and I came out on top, so I was kept back right. for the second week. And then third week, with all my friends gone, I was alone, the Irish man standing right. against 12 American acts. And yet again, I succeeded. So okay. uh, this made me a three-time winner, which meant that I would be recalled for a major show in the Madison Square Garden in a year's time. Or that was the plan. Yeah. And I came back again to great Tathara and yeah. a couple of pictures in the paper and was interviewed on radio and so on and so forth. People said I had improved enormously and my material <laughs> was so fresh. It was absolutely <laughs> incredible. You're well, letting you, out the secrets now, aren't you? I have But you had like, you've never <laughs> been somebody who's been, uh, you know, in all the years I've grown up with you, boastful or let stuff get to your head. But I mean, at 20 years old to be, I mean, there was no television in Ireland then. No, there wasn't. There was uh, barely radio, I suppose. You're suddenly on the streets of New York, which must have been something of a oh, sight to behold. Oh, it was absolutely fantastic, yeah. Well, you weren't there. I was. Were you? I was. Oh, I, you were. I was there then. Oh, I didn't realise that. We missed you. at home. I was surprised you didn't butt in. Oh, well, I, I, I'm very shy. You no, know, you're not maybe. shy. Oh, I'm awfully shy. <laughs> <laughs> and at that time, uh, 1956, we were brought up to the White House. Outside of the White House, Ike was ill at the time. Right. And Nixon uh, was his running mate. And there was a big sign as we left our hotel in New York saying, Stick with Ike! And get stuck with Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> Which was actually quite well, it prophetic. Was, it was, yeah. Well, I mean, Ike was re-elected, uh, although he was ill. And then subsequently, as you know... Yeah, we got stuck with Nixon. Nixon. We got stuck yeah, with Nixon. Good. And Where there was a young, there was a young, um, a young Irish senator, John F. Kennedy. Waiting and in the wings. quite wind. funny enough, a lot of the Americans weren't very pleased with John F. Kennedy. Because right. he, he was playing the racist card a bit. Yeah, well, sure, it was very They racist. said... In other words, he was wanted American to be for the Americans, yeah. whatever their colour, whatever their creed. Gerald, well, yes. so we missed your back. Where are you from? Oh, yes. Well, um, how did you how did you meet me? Oh, yes, I know how you did. Well, actually, Gerald, you weren't there. Was I not? No, you weren't. I had done my research. There you are, you see. You, I had Gerald Mark one. Oh, dear me. Here you go again. The other dummy that I'd made myself, mm. because at that stage you, you wanted to create a character that was all important. The famous ventriloquist at that time was a fellow called Edgar Bergen, yeah. with a dummy called Charlie McCarthy mm. and Mortimer Snerd. And Mortimer Snerd was sort of a, a country bumpkin, but I had the schoolboy character. I think I'm wearing his, ja his, his jacket. You are wearing his jacket, yes. And his trousers. Not his trousers, no, 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 no. Okay, but uh, anyway, I took these two in case I had to do a, a second performance. Mm. So there was a lot of fuss over the, 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 the first show, which was an all-Irish show, because the first act was on was a, was a trio from Trinity College. They sang a song in Irish, but it was a translation of Rock Around the Clock. 
Nine right. o'clock, with all o'clock, with yeah. three o'clock rock. Three o'clock, car o'clock, go o'clock rock. All the Irish were totally scandalised by the fact that people in Ireland were singing rock, rock around music. the clock yeah. and they weren't singing Makushla or whatever, you know. <laughs> but the next week I, I sang, uh, I think it was a song from the green fields of Ireland and the third time I sang... Uh, Thousands are sailing. Uh, or <laughs> not Phil the Fluter's Ball, but uh, anyway, one Some, of those Irish songs. So I made sure that, yeah. apart from the humour and the jokes and the ventriloquists, there was an Irish element too, which probably helped as well, you know. So that's right. You came along later because I, I, um, I couldn't afford a guy like you. No, no, because you got moving eyes. That's right. And you got moving eyebrows and you've got moving ears. And, and, and I can show me teeth like that, you see? Yeah. You can see the gushy teeth, you see that? Yeah. <laughs> and you can wag your ears and you can wink and so on. So there was a guy who was over from England. Uh, he was a ventriloquist and he advertised that he had a, a doll for sale. You know, I went along with a friend and uh, we purchased you. How much really? was he? Well, in actual fact, if you bought him from the store, he was 25 to 30 Irish pounds at the time. Wow, that's a and lot. I, I got him for seven pounds, which was my week's wages. A week's wages, right? Yeah. So that would and be... I'd say today uh, they cost about two thousand. Really? Me? That's right. Oh, I got a <laughs> <it> own. <laughs> okay, here I am. So, had you made quite a bit of money then by the time you were like twenty, or was there was no, it just for the love of the game, no, no, like no, podcasting? No, 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 no. To give you an idea, when RTE, when Irish Television started in 1961, I was on the first show, which mm. went out on New Year's Eve. Uh, I, I was then asked to do a show the following Saturday on a children's show. So I had two shows that first week. And then I re- more or less was asked to repeat, go back the following week on the kids' show. And then I eventually had my own show, 13 weeks at a time. And this went on and on. But say my fee at the time might have been seven euro, which was my week's wages at the time. Right. But the whole budget for the show was 20. <laughs> it was 20 euro. It was 20 euro. Right. So the producer had to do all the sets and all the thing and get the, get the time and the whole lot together for the other 13 quid right. like, you know. So you were a big shot. Oh, it was a big shot, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, he was saying it's all over <laughs> Ireland, weren't you? I was, yeah. Yeah. Did anybody ask for your autograph? No, and then. Really? Yes. I remember I was out in, in uh, a hospital out in Baltoil. It was called the Little Willie Hospital. Right. We will move fast on. Yes, okay. we'll dwell on that. But uh, while, I was, gags uh, in there. while I was out there, uh, when I was finished, uh, these nurses ran up. <laughs> And they presented their arms to me. And I said, what's all that about? Would you ever sign me arm, please? Ah, lovely. Uh, I did, but I hoped that they'd wash themselves before they I think I saw your... I was in a hospital recently. I saw an old lady with a... Sure, sure. Oh, wheel how about that now? Oh, jeepers. <laughs> Said she'd never watch it. She never washed it off. Oh, isn't that lovely? That's lovely. We, we talked about that you were on opening night on Irish television, but for years before that, you were on radio. That's right. <laughs> Which yeah. uh, my American friends find hilarious that there was things like Irish dancing on the radio and and uh, ventriloquism, Ginger. which are two 
parts of the arts that are so reliant on seeing <laughs> the visual well, representation you know, of it. I, I, I find that fa- a fascinating comment mm. because there's also horse racing on radio. Yeah. In fact, you have football on, on radio. Yeah. And you have, so well, you I, mean, have, I, there, there is I, I know what you mean. There's a difference between that because yeah. in horse racing, it's exactly the same image and you just need to know which horse is, is in charge. And, you know, if there was someone in the background going, he moved his lips a little bit there when uh, Gerald said something, you know, okay, but like there's Irish dancing, all you can hear is the clatter of feet. The actual abilities of the ventriloquist and the Irish dancers comes into question. A football commentary, the guy could say, your man's having a terrible game and he's hoofed that into the stands, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but I mean, to me, it's, it, it's a, a lovely thing in this time when we're snowed by technology that people were able to use their imaginations through a medium of radio, which at the time was the greatest thing. Because well, of, Edgar know, Bergen, who I mentioned earlier, yeah. made his fortune, and he really made a fortune on radio. And uh, he started around 1933, I think. He was the top performer and the highest paid performer for about yeah. 10, 15 years. If you can create the character, and if people sort of see photographs maybe of, of the character and they hear the voice and the, 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 there appears to be two people talking, then they sort of say, my goodness me, and that's, that, that's, uh, they identify with another person being at the, uh, at the thing. And the lip movement, eh, so what, you know? So you were, about 25, you opened Irish television, you were on Irish radio, you're still only in your mid-twenties. I know you got a, um, an engineering degree and you took a job at um, selling pumps and boilers to a burgeoning Irish semi-state facility. Um, we had to set up electricity supply boards and we had to set up railways and we had to set up all this kind of stuff. You had a nine to five That's uh, that was very straight. Yeah. Uh, what was the family stroke, brothers, sisters, friends view of you? Like, were you uh, odd or were you, you know, was it, was it, was it seen as kind of, he's a bit mad, like, but he's doing this straight thing. And at night you used to go in towards him on Friday and do your show, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. You see, I, I think ventriloquism from a business point of view is very useful because yeah. believe you it or get not. get your you, clients to say something that they didn't well, need to. No, Sorry, you, yeah, that, that's one way of looking at it. But the point is, as a ventriloquist, you have to think for two people. You have to get the reaction that the guy is going to have to your comments. And I think it makes you more empathetic to people's feelings. You know, you, you, you identify with the other guy's point of view. Yeah. So if, I, if I'm selling something, and in fact, you used to do that. That's right. If I was making a presentation, I'd sometimes put your man sitting on the, on the couch and make a presentation to him. And then he'd tear strips off it at the end of it, said, I didn't like this bit, didn't like that bit, didn't like the other <laughs> bit, like, you know. And this way you've got a feeling for, for people. And I, I think it has been very helpful because, as somebody said, what is truth? Like, you know, truth yeah. depends on where you're standing. Truth is, is it's, it's a dark night. Or truth is, there is no light. Mm. Which is it? Both are true. You know, there is no light. It is dark. But which is true, mm. you know? Can't both things in that case both be true? Both things can be true, yeah. yeah. And you have to accept that. Mm. But if you go in saying, no, this is only one truth, it's yeah. dark, then you're standing on somebody's belief, which is equally good to yours. Sure. Ventriloquism, just while we're on the subject of ventriloquism, it's kind of been a dying mm-hmm. art that's... There's always a couple of ventriloquists in the world. You were probably the... 
you and a guy called Eugene Lambert were probably the two preeminent uh, ventriloquists in Ireland for 30 years together. That's right. He made a career of it with his whole family, puppet shows and all that kind of stuff. You stuck to the double jobbing kind of thing that mm-hmm. you did through the 60s. So you had your own show uh, in the 60s every Friday and every Monday to Thursday and, and Friday you go into an office That's just right. down the road. I presume you're making more money in the ventriloquism or were you making more money in the plan you see, I don't move and this is what they all say I don't move just for money okay right. for me this is my hobby yeah I enjoy it I enjoy going out and being able to make people forget their worries enjoy a show have a laugh maybe appreciate some of the art of ventriloquism mm-hmm. and take a bow at the end to me that was satisfying it also was very satisfying to be on a TV show. I mean, let's just do the math. Mm-hmm. Let, let's supposing you, you have 24,000 people listening to this podcast at the moment. That's a thousand man days of 24 hours. Mm-hmm. That's 3,000 working days of eight hours, seven days a week. 3,000 working days every week are being spent listening to your show. In my case, I think you could add multiplied by zero. 10. Yeah, zero. There was, there was only one channel in Ireland. There so was only one channel. Watched it. Agreed. Yeah, there were more people watching my show in Cork than watching the news. That means there were two people watching the show in Cork. <laughs> Not right. Nothing of the sort. But, but there were about, I think there were about 250,000 people watching it. That to me was a challenge. I mean, uh, I felt it's incumbent upon me to try and make sure that those 250 man years were being <coughs> used beneficially. Mm. We had a show where we had the young people who performed and danced and, and uh, made recitations. I was the link person. Whitney, I haven't forgotten you. Okay, don't. <laughs> you might be out of the job if you do. Okay. And uh, with Barclay and with my other uh, other other. Uh, other puppets we presented this show mm. and it was it was liked and they they people wrote in and they with competitions and so on and so forth but to me it was it was a labor of love i enjoyed it in the same with the with the engineering point of view i was a representative i was trying to persuade people to buy things the products that we were selling were hopefully as good and a lot better than other products that were around yeah and my motto at the time was you know un- until we make the sale, we represent our supplier. But after we make the sale, we, make, we represent the client. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that he gets what it says on the tin. And these were my driving Goals philosophies the yeah. uh, from the very beginning. And it, it, it dates back to my father. My father was always fair day's work for a fair day's pay. Mm. He would not take the accepted sick leave in the civil service and got into terrible trouble with his colleagues. You know, they say, oh, you're entitled to take five days on unaccounted sick leave. And he said, I'm not sick like, you know. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as far as I know, this led to a bit of aggro <laughs> on yeah. the job. And still does with yeah. some people who sort of say, look, why is it that this people say, oh, I'm entitled to seven days unaccounted for sick leave, so which means I can take them. Whereas in actual fact, it starts out as being to cover the people who actually are sick, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I know, I know. But anyway. When I was growing up, you were very famous. I mean, one of the funny stories which I tell about both of you is that uh, Dad used to do some 
specials from Dublin Zoo where you would you would throw your voice and make the animals uh, talk. That's right, yes. Maybe I was three or four years of age, but I had been to the zoo and there was a huge bison in the zoo that when I went up to the cage, he was at the front and he talked to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like going, Dad, Dad, the bison's talking to me. And you were saying, I clearly is. And the bison was telling me where it was from and how knew my name. And I went home from the zoo unlike any other kid because my, my the animals when I went to the zoo talked. And then about three months would go by and uh, four months we go to the zoo again and I go tearing off to my friend in the bison enclosure. Um, my father would, of course, forgotten probably by then that he'd, he'd made the bison talk to me. And I'd be a little five-year-old, four-year-old kid at the bison enclosure shouting in front of a whole bunch of other school kids up to the bison saying, come on down, it's me, it's Sean. And all the teachers telling the other kids to step away from the mad <laughs> child in the corner. And then eventually dad would come along pushing the my sister, George, and go, oh, I've just made a boo-boo here. So then he'd have to put on a show with the bison talking in front of all the children. And there the teachers would be going, there's George causing major later in life problems for his son there. Gerald, did it go to your head? Oh, no, 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 not at all, not at all. I got a very big head, you see. <laughs> Plenty of space, isn't that right, George? What That's was right your right. best memory of the of the of of that 60s, the show well, that I, you Well, I remember something, Sean, I don't know if you remember it, but I used to come and see you every Saturday. When I was finished, uh, George here would take me and he'd say, Gerald, is it going away now? And he'd send you into the kitchen and I'd disappear. Yeah. And then you said, I want to say goodbye to George. To Gerald. And you'd say to Gerald. You'd say to me, yes. And uh, I'd say, uh, well, yes, okay. So uh, uh, take me outside the door, George. So George would take me outside the door. That's right. And he'd close the door. And uh, Therese would take you inside. Therese, my mother. That's right. And I disappeared again. And then Sean would say, I want to wave goodbye to him when he's in his car. And uh, George would take me out and put me sitting in the car, isn't that right? That's right, sir. And he'd drive up the road. Sean would wave to me. And all the neighbours would be looking at George going up the road in his car saying, my God, what's that for that? Yeah, it looked a bit crazy. And then he'd, he'd stop halfway up the road and, and take you out. And then he'd turn back and come back and he'd take me up and he'd put me into a suitcase. And I remember I was in my suitcase with me eggs, me legs around me arms, me, me head. And all of a sudden you came in. That's right. And you said, hello, Gerald. And I didn't say anything. You didn't. And you rushed downstairs and you said, George, Therese, Gerald is upstairs with his legs around his head and he, he wouldn't talk to me. I said he was dead in a case upstairs. I know, it was terrible. <laughs> Again, more trauma that, for me. Was that the end up. of it? Well, I can't remember. <laughs> but I think that was the end of it. The question I wanted to know yes. uh, was, you, you mentioned earlier about it being your hobby. That's right. Did you always have that separation between church and state about your oh, job? Oh, definitely. Your, yeah. 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 I mean, uh, no way would I like to have been a full-time Vent. talking to you, Gerald. I'm sorry. I know, George. Well, you're a full-time dummy, Jerry. Oh, I am, of yeah, course. Yeah, yes, that's yeah. true. I'm full-time, full-time. Yeah, yeah. I can talk to dummies, John, very well. That's why I'm talking to you. <laughs> and there is still an awful lot of ventriloquist around at the moment. I mean, you, you, you're you tending to be a bit dismissive. Uh, 
in America, you probably may or may not have heard, I think you saw him, Terry Fater. Yes. Who yeah, won X Factor. Yeah, yeah. Earning 10 million a year. In Vegas. In Vegas. There's Jeff Dunham, tours the world, earning, I'd say, 20 million a year yeah. with his various uh, dummies. There's Jay Johnson, who's mm-hmm. uh, got a one-man show. He was in one of the sitcoms in America while he was growing up, and now he's grown up and he's, he's, he's full-time. In, in, in and the Chuck Wood guy. David Strassman. Uh, and then I put a link to that little girl that you saw who blew your socks off. And she was absolutely terrific. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And she learned it all in two years. And it took you about ten. God, <laughs> say this and this. Is, what were you at? There's this astonishing young, I, th- I think it was an X Factor or something was, as well. Yeah, she was, was on. America's Talent. America's, America's Got Talent. talent and yeah. uh, she's, uh, I, I sent the link to, to Dad and Gerald and they both looked at, at her and went, astonishing, didn't you? Oh, yes. I thought she was amazing. Absolutely. I want to know her phone number. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> She's and only she, 12. She has a, she'll grow up. She'll grow up. What age are <laughs> you, you, Gerald? Old. What age are you? Uh, I, I, I think I'm around 12 to 14. 12 to 14. Do you know Bart Simpson? No, I don't. No, he's Bart Simpson. He's about your age. Well, he's, he's a cartoon character. Well, oh, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't mind those cartoon characters. It's not real, you know. No, each other. There's so only a voice behind them. Crazy. So the other question I have for um, primarily George is the, 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 the sort of Ireland that you've seen growing up from the 40s, 50s, 60s. What are the sort of observations that you give, you know, looking back on where we've come and, and, and what do you feel is, is great and what do you think might not be so great? Gonga, George, gonga. What do you mean, goma? Grunt the old man alert. Grunt the old man alert. That's right. He always says that, you know, when he's allowed to give a rant. Okay, rant away. Okay. Well, my me- recollection at school, going to tenements, the Vincent de Paul Society, maybe 12 people in two rooms, toilets out the back. Absolute terrible. And uh, funny enough, my memory of them was that they were sort of happy. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, happy in squalor, which uh, we don't like. Now you don't have that. You don't have that, which I think is absolutely fantastic. We are regarded now as a, a grown-up nation, but I think we are losing various aspects of our, our ethos as we grow. The caring element is now being replaced with the commercial. For example, when I grew up, uh, when, I w- when I went for a job, when I qualified, I was offered a job in Shell in uh, Frawley in England. I think the salary was around £750 a a year. This would be 1958. And uh, I was also offered a job in University College Dublin at £300 a year. And I took the job in Dublin because I felt that I wanted to be here and to contribute and to give something back, as they say today. You must be very proud of me, who's just buggered off for 21 years. I'm joking. <laughs> you are giving it to the world. You are giving it to the world in all shapes yeah, and sizes. Yeah, advertising, you know? great. But, uh, but you see, that's the difference between myself and you. That's the 20-year gap, mm. shall we say, uh, or 27-year gap. But I think in the last 27 years while you've been away, mm. it has become even more commercially orientated. Whereas everybody is concerned, it's somebody else's problem to solve. Mm. And we talked about many of these problems before we started this podcast. There's a Jesuit who is a philosopher of sorts or a spiritual character. He makes a number of things that if you want to change the world, you first of all have to change yourself. 
we can all give out about the other guy and what he isn't doing. And as somebody said, if you're pointing a finger at somebody, remember there are three fingers pointing back at you. And you have to ask, are you making your contribution? And I feel that we have made enormous strides. When I was starting out, there was about 400,000 people employed in Ireland. That was around 1958. And now there are 2 million people employed, a fantastic increase. That level of employment brings its own responsibilities to the individual as well as to the state. Mm. And the state can only function if the individual performs. Mm. And I'm sad a little bit that I feel that the individual is losing his sense of personal responsibility. That makes sense. That does make sense. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I I, um, it's a big long speech. Anyway, you're all going to sleep now. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would agree with that to a certain extent. I mean, I think we knew it to be star the podcast talking about civil servants and and the fact that we had to build a country, you know, very quickly, and a, a huge part of your life was in the service of both cultural contribution to that through Gerald and yourself and Barclay and, and through you. the um, the rolling up the sleeves and getting corporations tooled up and there's something very creative about what you did with your life and I feel there's a lot of creativity gone missing a little bit in the country that we don't tend to apply and we are quite a creative known to be quite a creative people in terms of our writers and our musicians and our and our ventriloquists. Oh, and, very good. Yes, and, don't uh, forget us. And and so I, I just feel that there's, you know, there's a, there's a, there seems to be problems that seem to be, if people would just, as you would say, take responsibility, solvable, and we just don't seem to solve them. But I, I said, yeah, we talked about it before, about the STEM subjects. Yeah. Now, I chose engineering as a degree uh, path because I was good at science, technology, uh, engineering, engineering and math. Yeah. These were practical subjects. I mean, I remember consciously not doing history because I wanted to do chemistry. Yeah. But I think I might have been wrong because I think the arts give you a reason for living, whereas the STEM subjects only give you the tools to live. And as somebody said recently, it should be STEAM subjects, yeah. science, technology, arts and maths, mm. so that the soul goes back into the activities we do. Yeah. And that, I think, is your point. The creativity or the soul has to be embedded again mm. into these s- subjects. And we, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be directed only towards the implementation for monetary gain in the various activities. Perhaps... It is being focused and channeled towards towards something which will collapse in the end because yeah. you know we're talking about robotics and all these sort of things that you know. Sure, there'll be artificial intelligence like you. Yeah, indeed. Wait, <laughs> wait, lying in charge. I'm telling you. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, there we are. So I do feel I do see uh, different issues. I mean, I think you could even despite all the crap that's going through right now, America is probably still the. Um, I heard that. That's not a bad yeah, language. That's good. that is definitely not a bad language. You, right, you can read that right, in the newspaper okay. today. I was told before I came on by my father that he didn't want to use any bad language. So those of you who are regular listeners, well, I'm present and I'm just a young fella. Isn't that yeah, right, well, that George? was the reason right. Dad said it. there's children present. Um, but uh, you know, America is still, for all its flaws, right now probably the place where most 
those patents are, are, are recorded every yeah. year and it's still a creative country I, I worry about the effect that Trump has Australia I feel in government is far more creative than we are we have a, an unfortunate history that got uncovered in the 80s of backhanders and dodgy politicians and corruption which is not unique to Ireland by any means which we've we've tried to get rid of but we still have the talky fest and the lack of action and the lack of anything and a, a revolving door of ministerial appointments where nothing really gets done and that's very frustrating and there's one thing else John I didn't <coughs> yeah. tell you about 1956 what the happened? most important thing that happened to him in 1956 go on Georgia alright well, I was on a concert in the Gresham Hotel and there was a group of harpists on. They were very good. I was compared on the show. And uh, while I was there, this young lady in her school uniform comes up to me and says um, she'd lost the key to her harp. And I said, oh, well, I must help you look for the key to your harp. So we both went round to the stage, uh, backstage and round and eventually went to the Porter, and eventually we found the key to her harp. And uh, that young lady, 11 years later, turned out to be my wife. Yes. So now. The aforementioned trays. The aforementioned trays. Who thought and we would use the word aforementioned? There you go. I must say that she has been very patient. Oh, she has to be with you, that's for sure. <laughs> that. Uh, she's been very patient and loving and raised a fantastic family there you go you can't you can't disagree with that sean my last and funny stories of of both of you was when i was working in ireland in the advertising business probably around 1990 and hello brendan o'reilly because i think you listened to the podcast there was an ad we were trying to do for seven up which at the time used fido dido possibly your last public appearance um, on a billboard anyway i'd say yes the lads in the office had an idea which was the, the the fido dido character from seven up with a dummy on his knee saying it's ghoul to be clear. Uh, I told them, well, my father has Gerald and Gerald That's would right. be great. And they came yes. out to see Gerald. Yes. And when yes. they came out, my father had Gerald on his knee and they yes. were talking to the two boys and Gerald was engaging to them just like he is right now. Yes, yes, yes. Gerald was saying stuff like, well, will you need me or do you need the other fella as well? And they were saying, no, Gerald, we just need you. And they were having a conversation with both of them, with both, with both Gerald and my father, and then arranged that Gerald was perfect for the part, Great. signed you up on the spot, that's right, and said that you'd be needed next Wednesday, and yes. then said goodbye to my dad, yes. bye to Gerald, and then halfway into town realised they were talking to the dummy. And so was I. I was talking to two of them. You were. <laughs> the other dummy oh, was dear. Tom Kelly. Uh, speaking of talking to yourself, you launched a book. I did indeed. I uh, about it, okay. 15 years ago, I suppose. No, no. Well, 2003. Yeah, you're right. Mm, there well you go. Done. Time yeah. flies. Yes, time flies. Done my research. Uh, it's, it's mainly about my activities in the ventriloquial field and leading up to it and about the strange things that happened along the way. One of the last questions is, and I'm fascinated to hear your answer to this, is what, what do you say to, first of all, uh, a young boy or girl who's interested in ventriloquism? Yes. Today, both of you, Gerald, this yes, might be for yes, you yes. as well. Uh, what advice would you give them? And also, secondly, you know, what advice do, would you give back to just um, your, your younger self or some, somebody just who's a teenager or just finishing school today? Well, on the ventriloquism, I'd say there are so many heroes to look into or to follow or to examine. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, as in my day, getting to see or hear these people, I used to be crouched over the radio 
listening to AFN in the old days, trying to get Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Now I have a briefcase full of all their recordings, Um, (laughs) hundreds of them. Uh, that I bought years ago. But to segue just briefly before you finish yeah. that question, because we'll probably end on your answer to that question. Uh, there's a nice sort of completion to the story because I remember when I got into advertising, you found out that there was no record of you on television because they recorded over all your tapes of your shows. And I remember going towards you and thought I'd surprise you with finding something. And we found one thing that you looked at and went, oh, that wasn't very good. It was, a, <laughs> it was a, a show after the event about some of the very famous people. And it is worth mentioning a lot of the very famous artists, uh, even still working today in Ireland, uh, made their first appearance with George and uh, Gerald here on the, on the show. And then tell us what happened. Uh, you, you finally have an, a beautiful record of your career that you can watch. Tell us what happened, that story. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, the Ted and Axe show, yes. Well, I mean, the, the American show, I remember when I was doing it, which was sponsored by Geritol yeah. for tired blood, yeah. I saw a guy with a camera. Cineate or something, yeah. Cin- Cinemate yeah. or something like that. One of these, the, he was taking a, a recording of the show. So that was in 1956. I was back there again, as I told you, in 1958. And then about 10 or 15 years later, I started trying to uh, see if I could find, is there any record of the show, you see? Mm. So couldn't find anything. There had been a, a, two, a two-year gap between my return and when I was on because Geritol also sponsored a quiz show called 21. And there was a big scandal about that show because they found that the contestants were getting the answers before they oh, this went is on. the Charles Van Doren or whatever. Yeah, there's uh, a movie made of it. There is a movie made of it. Yeah. I think it's called Quiz Show, the movie. Yes, the Quiz Show movie. Yeah, great finds. So it was a terrible scandal mm. and Geritol pulled immediately their sponsorship from the Quiz Show. Yeah. But they also happened to be sponsors for the Ted Mack Show. So that got pulled. So I, I kept getting letters saying, uh, we won't be needing you in September at the moment because some yeah. things have to be ironed out like now, at this time, it was great because I was dying with pneumonia and yeah. Asian flu at this time. And I nearly turned my toes up, as they say. Anyway, at the end of the year, I had recovered and uh, was able to go back in 58 to participate in the show. To cut a long story short, I hit on, a, on an internet connection. I got in touch with this guy down in San Francisco and I said, look, what's this about the Ted Mack show? He says, oh, yeah, I, I have inherited all the tapes. And I said, well, would you by any chance have the 1956? So he looked it up and he had uh, two I did first time in 56 and the one I did in 58. But they, he said, the story is, he says, they were left to me. And in the old days, the Americans had a bunker in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. That is also a very fond Norland Hardy fan. Exactly. <clears throat> and they had these this big bunker where the great and the good would be whisked off to in the event of a nuclear attack. Now, this is 1956-58 when the Cold yeah. War was at its highest. And they had, I don't know, billions of dollars there and food and that to keep them going for a couple of years so that when the radiation had fallen down, they could come out to start again. And eventually the need for the bunker's size grew, so they had to move out of that bunker to another one, where that one is, I don't know. But the one in the Blue Ridge Mountains was donated to the state for the National Archives. He donated all the tapes to the National Archives, so deep in the bowels of the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia were the tapes of my show. And I said, well, can I get a copy? And he said, yeah, well, they're a bit expensive, which they were. But uh, anyway, we struck a deal. 
and he said it's expensive because they take out the the movies they clean every frame right and they then put it onto a DVD yeah. and he says it looks like it was recorded yesterday it does great it's in quality. black and white yeah. and in due course three DVDs come along and I could sit back and enjoy I this know. young fella ah oh, this is fella but it's kind of weird looking at your dad at 20 <laughs> you know it's kind of oh. he's only 20 now isn't that right oh yes the other thing is uh, George is born on the 29th of February so he's born in a leap year. that's right so, so he, he only had 20 30s so he's only had 20 birthdays and so he's he looking a, forward to his 25th he was a cheap date as a dad <laughs> anyway finish the point before we get up we get kicked out of the room but aspiring ventriloquist needs to study all of the various material that's available to him or her and enjoy it and go out and and try it by trying you improve you can learn from all these people from the books that are available there are dvds available now they're absolutely fantastic and they will teach you the rudiments no problem but then use it for the benefit of others (laughs) does it bite you what or you know it's, it's it seems to be the sort of thing like what happened with you with the yeah. the Sheriff Creek uh, story that you get into it to such a oh yeah yeah I mean I are you surprised that you're still doing it oh little this little this <laughs> only a little this only a little this I, 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 I want to tell them something yeah. as well among life's dying embers these are my regrets when I'm right no one remembers when I'm wrong no one forgets How's that? Very good. I think that's an interesting, an interesting roundup. That's probably the advice you'd probably give to a, a, a person anyway who's who's nothing to do with ventriloquism. Or what would you say to your young nieces or a young person today who's entering the I'd world? I'd say remember that that to change the world you have to change yourself. To take responsibility for your actions, to listen and to hear when you're listening, to see and to see the magic around you and to do your best at whatever you take on. That's it, more or less. That's excellent. George and Gerald, it was a pleasure having you both. Oh, it's nice both seeing you too, Sean. On the show. Um, I normally play out to the famous uh, Stop the Pigeon music, but yeah. I was wondering if you two would like to sing well, us out I, on the show. I will, and maybe you'll join me, because I the north, and I've been south, and I the east and west. Oh, I've been just a rolling stone. Still, there's one place on this earth we always love the best. Just one little spot we call our own. Oh, Dublin can be heaven with coffee at eleven and a stroll, a little stroll in Stephen's Green, in Stephen's Green. Grafton Street's a wonderland, there's magic in the air there are diamonds in the lady's eyes and gold dust in her hair so if you don't believe us why then come and meet us there where in dublin on a sunny summer morning thank you sean thank you very much that was gerald and shorsha on thank you with shawnee b i'll catch you all next time Thanks a lot. Bye, Gerald. Bye now. Be seeing you again sometime.